Welcome to episode 333 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. It's been fun to see what gets highlighted in the 220 plus Amazon reviews for my latest book, Break Out of Boredom, Low Tech Solutions for Highly Engaging Zoom Events. I forget how life-changing some of these little tips can be since I've been using them for years. For instance, did you know you can increase the font size of Zoom chat? You can. It's tiny at 100%, but you can increase the chat font size to 120%, 150%, 180%, or even 200%. How? Put your cursor in chat and select Control and the plus equals key on your keyboard, or if you're on a Mac, press the Command key and the plus equals key on your keyboard. Each time you tap the plus key, it will increase the next percentage. And if you want to reduce that, just hit the minus key again while holding down either control or command. If that blows your mind, you will definitely want to download the book's bonus resource library, which includes checklists, step-by-step guides, and over 30 Zoom strategy videos. Download the book's bonus resource library for free at breakoutofboredom.com. This book has reached number one bestseller in 18 Amazon categories across the US, UK, and Canada. If you use Zoom for work in any capacity, whether you're a Zoom novice or a Zoom pro, you will learn something in this book that will help you. If you know someone who would benefit from reading this book, you can gift them the ebook or mail them the paperback. They'll appreciate you. It's available wherever books are sold. Now, onto this week's interview. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest works with organizations that need their leaders to become better bosses and cultivate commitment in the workplace. He has spent thousands of hours shaping managers into strong leaders with his decades of experience, compelling content, and dynamic delivery. He's attracted audiences of all sizes from all sectors across North America. He headed learning and development for a top 10 U.S. healthcare organization where he managed training for more than 9,000 employees at over 500 locations. He's the author of Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. He also hosts the popular Boss Better Now podcast, which was recently named by Sherm as a can't-miss show for leaders, along with podcasts from Brene Brown, and Harvard Business Review. Please join me in welcoming Joe Mole. Welcome, Joe. Hey, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here. 
Joe, I was so excited when I saw you in Pennsylvania until I realized you're on the opposite side of the state. So we're actually really far from each other. So welcome <laughs> from the Pittsburgh area. I'm over here in the Philly area. Hello, neighbor. I'm waving to you out east, my friend. <laughs> yes. So as you know, this is a show about building strong networks and relationship building, but the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead? So I've always, well, always is a relative term, I guess, but in my professional career and the work I've done around leadership, I've defined the term pretty simply as creating the conditions for people to thrive. And because the nature of my work tends to focus mostly on leading people, leading teams in the workplace, that definition works pretty well. I think that's the gig, right? My job as a leader is to go to work and figure out what do these people need to be at their best every day and then fight like crazy to give it to them. And, you know, as I develop as a leader, I learn more of the nuanced ways in which uh, I can do that and more of the nuances around what people need to experience to be at their best. But for me, that's that's the role of a leader. As far as when I first realized that I had the capacity to lead, uh, when when you gave me that question, the first thing that popped into my mind was my freshman year of college when I started getting involved in some student organizations. And, you know, student organizations, they're sort of an organic leadership experience that rises through those, right? People volunteer for things and then all of a sudden you have a position title and the next thing you know, you're the president of your fraternity or you're an RA or you're, you know, a stage manager for the musical or you're me and you're all of those things. And so um, really since my my freshman year of college, every volunteer role I've had, every job I've had has required to me to be in front of the room in one way or another, speaking, creating content, helping people make decisions, helping support people as they were pursuing whatever it was that they were pursuing. So yeah, I think freshman year of college springs to mind first. I'm really curious about who you were even before the freshman year of college, because for you to, I mean, even the RA role, my wife was a director of residence life. So I'm actually fairly intimately knowledgeable yeah. about Liz's life. Um, yeah. and, and I lived on a college campus with her for a bit as well. But to even say, oh yeah, put my, put my name down for that, like takes a certain kind of student. Um, I understand like being a stage manager, like I've had those roles, like you're a little behind the scenes, right? Which is different yeah. than, stepping into a, a leadership role within an organization like president. So who were you growing up to position yourself in that way? Like, how did you show up? I don't know, like on the playground when you yeah. were a kid or did you run for office in, in high school <laughs> or I don't know, like right. organize people to do things like the teachers see some potential in you or how, how did that yeah. all unfold? Yeah, you have great instincts, Robbie. This is a really interesting question because my formative years in elementary school and middle school, I was horrendously bullied. I was very small and very smart. I was a kid who liked school. I raised my hand a lot. I was very bright. I was tested, right, you know, for the gifted programs and all those things like that. But I suffered a lot. And this was, you know, back in the 80s, there were no anti-bullying programs back then. And when I moved into high school, you know, I had a core group of friends, like three or four guys that we just were, were tight. Um, but I got involved in music in my sophomore year of, of high school. And, um, you know, a teacher put me on stage and said, sing, and I could sing. And the, the story of that was I, I learned that I had value. I had talent. I had, there was something special about me. And, um, you know, I tell people all the time that teacher might've saved my life in a lot of different ways because, um, that was a safe place where I could go and find other kids like me. And when I went to, to school, 
I ended up majoring in music and theater. And when I got to campus, I think I had had the experience of living in a community where I experienced a lot of suffering and being a part of a community where I experienced a lot of support, that that all baked into the pie of what made me want to be an RA, of, of creating communities that were safe for kids from all walks of life. And interestingly, because you know what you said about your your wife when i graduated from undergrad with my degree in music and theater i went and had a 10 year career in student affairs as a director of residence life as a um a director of health education and promotion sorry not a director of residence life a residence life director i was a, a director of health i worked for 10 years in that environment doing all of that kind of work and i really do think it was a born out of those experiences of you know needing someone to advocate for me and when i didn't get that i became that advocate I mean, it's really interesting, the empathy that you sort of got out of those early experiences that are hard to teach that empathy. It's I'm sorry that you had to go through that suffering. Um, you know, it, it's still happening, even with the bullying program, anti-bullying yeah. programs that we have. It's still very much happening. And sometimes it's happening on a, on a grander scale. And so um, it is it is interesting to have you as a person who, you know, by all accounts, seems to have the most privilege in our society to have that empathy and to want to create these spaces where everyone feels welcome, to want to create an environment where everyone feels safe comes mm. from these early, these, these early childhood moments. Um, and that teacher, that could have been a great moment or a bad moment when she said, go ahead and sing. <laughs> yeah. You knew how to <laughs> sing. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I was fortunate early in life to form sophisticated relationships with a lot of people who are typically pushed to the margins, right? My two best friends in college were both gay men. I worked with people from all walks of life, uh, gender diverse groups, neurodiverse folks, uh, you know, racially diverse people in the world of theater, right? You know, we, we know that that is a um, uh, truly a, not a melting pot, but a tossed salad of, of difference and of human difference. And so uh, really in, in the early part of my late teens and early 20s, I had a lot of conversations with people that really helped me understand that, boy, I do check the box for every majority group or classification that you can possibly have, right? I'm a white, straight, cisgendered male who was raised Protestant, right? And I'm being aware of, and this is when I got into grad school that really, I, I think I gained a, a, a better awareness of the understanding of what you get as a result of that privilege and the power that you have. And so um, I am very aware that I am on a journey of learning and understanding and that I really have to pay attention to folks who are uh, underrepresented, who are marginalized to understand how I can be a better ally to them. It's such a rare education that you had being given an opportunity and, and then in some ways seeking the opportunity because you were like, this is the place that I felt safe. So I'm going to yeah. go do this in college. And then, of course, college draws a wider variety of people than your hometown. And so suddenly you're in spaces with people diverse from you in all kinds of ways. But you were already defining this is a safe space for you. So you weren't going to be like, well, I'm leaving this place now because other people came. You're like, no, this is still the safest place for me. I need to figure this out. And what an education to be in that space, often the only, <laughs> which yeah. is rare, uh, given yeah. all the attributes you just described for yourself. Um, it, it, I'm just framing this because it feels like how you show up today in the world makes more sense. Like you and I don't know each other super well. We met through the National Speakers Association. 
um, I think well of you from afar and sure. not knowing this, this grounding that you had as a starting point in your life. And now all kind of like clicks like, oh yeah, that makes sense. He does seem like the kind of person who is safe to be around, who creates a nice space, who welcomes people. Um, and of course, in your experience in student affairs and doing res life work, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, right. how many icebreakers do you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. We sit in circles and talk about our feelings. That's what we do in student affairs. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder if it really is as simple as at such a young age, just being treated differently for who you are and then growing up and seeing that 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 is systemic and that you know in a way that goes beyond youth right and so just having had that experience myself at such a young age i probably informs that empathy a lot that you're talking about so you headed off to college to do kind of performing arts it sounds yeah. like Did, yeah. was that sort of the goal career wise was there a bigger goal than that or was that sort of the end goal yeah the goal was to be on broadway or mm-hmm to be a high school choir teacher, you know, and, and I love, uh, you know, I, I love preparing music and performing music. And, you know, I learned a couple of things when I got to undergrad, which is that if you want to be a music teacher, you should probably start studying the piano at a young age, which I did not. Uh, I was the world's worst piano student and, uh, you know, graduated without the necessary skills, really, truly to be in a classroom. And, um, when I did my undergrad program, I loved performing and learned a lot about performing, but I didn't really learn anything about how to get a job in performing, right? I think a lot of music programs nowadays have figured out that they need to teach kids how to audition and they need to connect students with opportunities and um, you know, festivals and competitions and things like that. And, you know, I spent a lot of time studying German leader and it didn't really serve me well <laughs> as a singer. Uh, if really, what I really wanted to do was, was musical theater. Um, but you know, Robbie, everything I've ever done in one way or another informs what I'm getting to do now. And so uh, I will sometimes have people say to me, aren't you sad you're not using your performing arts degree? And I use it every day. I'm on stage every week as a speaker. And that requires musicality and rhythm and cadence and all of those things that uh, are a part of what it means to be a musician. So I'm still using it. I'm just using it differently. Yeah, that makes sense. Similarly, I have a master's in social work that yeah. Um, you know, how does it show up? It shows up all the time. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I studied macro social work. So organizations and, and groups and how we all kind of operate together. So yes, it, it kind of shows up, but I think it doesn't show up. And then like, I have a clinician, you know, title and right. work in a hospital. It's not that, but like you said, you know, holding space, creating the presence of all that. So you graduate without a good idea of how to get a job in this field that you had so much love for. Right. What, what's the next path? Is, is there a direct path or do you just start taking different roles? Like, how do you sort of find your way? I mean, now I know you as the entrepreneur and the speaker and the author, right. but did you go right into that or was there a sort of intermediary like role? Well, in undergrad, I I was an RA and I was the president of my fraternity and I was very involved in a lot of leadership work in student affairs as a student. And so when I became aware that you could continue doing that kind of work and get paid for it after college, that really appealed to me. And so I ended up taking a job at the University of Toledo right after I graduated from uh, undergrad. And I worked there for a year running a bunch of on and off campus apartment complexes. It was a really unique residence life setup. And 
you know, I think I made $23,000 a year and, and got an apartment and worked 80 hours a week. And, you know, it was a real education. And then two friends of mine from undergrad had both landed at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and were raving about the place. And so I was I'd gotten unhappy uh, with my role at UT after that first year. And so I looked around and ended up applying for and getting a full-time position in the residence life department at Ohio University, which are typically master's required positions. But my year of experience and my commitment to enroll in the master's program there allowed me to come through the door. So I worked there full-time for a couple of years while doing my master's part-time. So I do have a master's in education and specifically higher education administration. Uh, but again, I'm still using that in a lot of ways now. Uh, and then I moved through that student affairs career really for 10 years, moving in, uh, in the direction of residence life and then health education and promotion, did a lot of work with uh, new student orientation programs and whatnot. And then really the transition to a more traditional training and development role uh, was when I moved over to take an entry-level training job at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and then spent a couple of years there rising up through the ranks in their HR department, designing and delivering leadership development and management training programs. Uh, did that for a number of years, became the head of learning and development for physician services for one of the largest outpatient groups in the country. Uh, and then uh, an interesting thing happened to me, Robbie, and I have a feeling this happens to a lot of us who find ourselves in private practice. Uh, we got called into an office one February in 2013, and we were told that our entire divisional team had been eliminated because they were uh, changing the org structure for the whole HR model. And they said, you're going to be here for four months in your current role, but then everything will flip. And Joe, we love you. You're an asset. We are going to try to pay you the same. We're just going to move you over here. Uh, and over here was not the right fit for me in any way. And so I was sort of faced with a crisis at that point about figuring out what I wanted to do next. Mm. So this is really interesting. You got a lot of stage time before you knew that it was called stage time. That's right. You got That's a right. lot of time. You got a lot of reps, like leading, yeah. leading quote unquote trainings, right? Like that you mm -hmm. probably weren't thinking in the same way that you did later in your career, but you were doing programs. Right. And That's exactly right. You were doing programs which is the same thing as trainings in a lot of ways. You were doing right. speaking engagements, yep. you weren't thinking of it that way. And you kind of got the, the, the reps in to get comfortable with that so that you would apply for a more specifically training role in HR. Yeah. You did yeah. really well on that. But then you're at this crisis point because this thing you know how to do is no longer what they're asking you to do. You've now mm -hmm. defined this as a skill set. Is this when you decide entrepreneurship? It is. And it was because I had had a whole host of experiences that fed into me starting to believe that maybe I had a knack for this beyond what most people do. And it took years of hearing that from others, of other people saying, man, I could listen to you read the phone book. You're really good at this. You know, really lovely things from people. And funny story, the first keynote I've ever done, I ever did, I didn't even know that's what it was called, but we would bring all of our first year students together at the University of Pittsburgh every year and bring in a speaker to talk about taking care of yourself as a freshman. And one year they hired a judge who came in and talked about alcohol and it just landed with a thud because it was a whole abstinence message. And I talked to the dean of students afterwards and said, you know, I, I think I could, I've been doing award-winning alcohol education programming on the campus for a while. And I said, hey, if you'd be open to it, I think I could do a better job than, you know, somebody you're going to bring in and you're already paying me. So why don't you just let me do that? 
And so I ended up doing a, a program for 45 minutes at the center court of the university's basketball arena in front of 3,500 people that went very well and is to date still one of the largest audiences I've ever had on stage just because I said, hey, I, I, this is something that I can do creatively and that people seem to respond to. And so you fast forward past that HR experience and what became apparent to me was that people were thirsty for both the content I was creating and the style that I was bringing to that content. And so I had the thought of, well, if people internally here are thirsty for this, maybe there are some folks out there who would be thirsty for it too. And I never aspired to run my own business at all. But I realized quickly that it was the only way I could keep doing the work that I love to do on my terms. And so with a, a two and a half year old at home and a six month old at home uh, and being the primary earner, we jumped off a cliff. Wow. Did you have a community of entrepreneurs at that time? Nope. I was very lucky, though, in mm -hmm. that when I decided to do this, uh, right around that time, uh, I knew a guy who knew a guy who was involved in the, the Pittsburgh chapter of the National Speakers Association. And so he said, hey, you should go check this out. And so literally one month before I started my business, I went to my first NSA Pittsburgh meeting. And thank God, because what an, that was the community. That was the network uh, that I needed to support me on this journey. I can't imagine the learning curve that would have been in place without that community or the degree to which the, my runway to success was shortened because I was surrounded by generous people who were willing to say, hey, we can all be successful. We can all build a bigger pie. Let me help you. And, you know, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Build a bigger pie. That's the, the sort of mantra that we've all had instilled in us um, from the founder, Cavett Robert, who, uh, who coined that phrase that we all talk about, um, build a bigger pie. So that's great. I, I mean, I love hearing that you stumbled upon pretty early, it sounds like, like right almost the moment you needed it. Talk about just-in-time learning. Right. Yep. <laughs> no yeah. kidding. So what was, I guess, most challenging about that shift? You had content ideas, you had stage experience, you didn't really have the business plan that's and a, obviously you right. had two kids under three um mm -hmm. my business by the way started also like right before i had our first like our first child was born um and then i was the primary caregiver for the first three years and we had two kids under three so i i yeah. kind of know that feeling of like okay yes. i always joked you know one starving child is like oh, but two people start <laughs> to question like i mean yep. so you kind of have to have a plan here but like, what was challenging about that shift and what kind of resources did you need to get support around from your community? Yeah, I mean, the, there's, there's no secret. The challenge was, how do I make money, right? How do I get paid? And so I can pay my mortgage and keep the lights on. And, um, you know, my wife, I joked to my wife, year one is, is just about getting through it, right? I had, I was getting three paychecks after my position was eliminated. And then there was a tiny little period of unemployment. And then it was like, okay, I, I need to be earning. And so um, I figured out quickly that if I went out into the world as a jack of all trades saying, I could do that and I could do this or I could do that, then I'm not really going to get people understanding exactly what I do and who I do it for and, and help people understand how to seek me out. So when I started my business, I right away had the instinct that I wanted to create a very specific product for lack of a better word, 
And I had spent years teaching frontline healthcare managers how to be better leaders. And so I created a two-day leadership masterclass that was specifically for outpatient practice managers in healthcare clinics. And I started working my network and I started plugging into more national associations and really just built it from there. One of the first successes I had was at my own expense, I went and did a breakout session at a large uh, healthcare uh, conference that I had been involved in the association for a number of years. And I knew that if I did well at the breakout, that it could feed the business for a little while. People would hire me to do more what I had done there. Uh, and that's really how I got it off the ground. But trying to figure out how do I generate revenue quickly? No question. That was the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Well, and it sounds like there's a couple of things you, you leaned into. One was you, you went with a network um, that you already had access to. Like I guess I'm saying, um, your ideal client was within your network. You weren't like, now I'm going to work with um, airline Plumbers. pilots. Right. <laughs> like, <Yeah>. whatever. You're <laughs> yeah. like, this is the knowledge that I'm already known for. I already have sort of connections and a reputation somewhat in this space. How do I leverage that? And the hard part is like building something that you're trying to attract people to, but then you went to where other people were already gathered, paying your own way, as you pointed out. Um, which means not only were you not paid, but you paid your own travel yeah. and yep. your hotel. Did you have to also yep. pay for the conference? Yep. Yep. Because, I mean, we debate this all the time <laughs> as speakers, whether or not to take those opportunities. Um, yeah. You know, the whole um, uh, exposure kills. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exposure <laughs> is both exposure. an opportunity and a medical diagnosis that can kill you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> both things. So, um but, it, but when it's strategically done, which it sounds like you were very thoughtful, like this is the audience that you can have that follow on work from and you'd already developed, and this is critical for those listening, you'd already developed what your offer was going to be after the stage. You already decided that and it was already um, something you thought would work. Now, what proof did you have that that was, that two-day program was the right program? Like, how did you test mm. that theory? Yeah. Well, I tested, I learned a couple of things about that two day program. I was fortunate that um, I, you know, as you said, I leveraged my network and I got connected to somebody at the local county medical society and they would periodically do programs. And I met with them and I was filling a leadership and people management void that, that they had. They said, we do a lot of work with physicians. We don't have this piece. We'd like to have this offering. And so they were happy to partner with me in whatever way made sense that was mutually beneficial. And so we offered this two-day program, and we figured out very quickly that most people don't want to give up two days for a program like that. So we compartmentalized, turned it into a one-day program that had a greater deal of success. That piece of content, I, I call it an accordion piece of content, right? It's a two-day program that can be a one-day program, that can be a half-day program, that can be a one-hour keynote that eventually turned into a book. So when I went to that healthcare association, I took the best, most valuable, most compelling pieces of that, turned it into a 50-minute breakout session, gave it a title that sizzled. I knew that I needed the title to jump off the page. And, and if you ask me what the title was right now, I don't know that I could remember it because it's you know nine, 10 years ago now. But um, I knew if I could just put some people in the seats and if I could go do, you know, do what I do best, that it would make the phone ring. And it did. In my second book, Small List, Big Results, I talk about building an audience before you try to sell anything and using your, your existing network to discover likely prospects and likely referral partners. The conversation you had where you realized that there was a gap in the market, 
that you were ready to fill and they wanted you to fill like that, that in itself helped you kind of confirm you were on the right path. You weren't just like, you weren't duplicating what was already out there, zilling in other ways. There was something unique about what you're offering and they were seeking someone to refer to. Like they wanted this to happen. So I think that due diligence is really important because I think a lot of us experts, we fall into what I call expert syndrome where we just know what people need. Yeah. <laughs> and so we go build a thing without talking to anyone. And then we're like, yay, it's here. We bring it out to the market and market's like, who are you? What is this? I don't need this. And so you avoided some of that by having that partnership, but then you also listen to the feedback that a two day program, you know, may not work in people's schedules as well. How can you deliver it in a different way that would be an easier yes. Um, so, I mean, that's, it's a, it's a lot of learning there for people and what a painful thing to be in, but once you figure it out and then you go find a pipeline and the pipeline for you was to go speak on your own dime at these conferences and then drive that pipeline into your program. Is that sort of what ended up happening? It is. And, and you hit on an, a piece that I didn't mention, but that I know is an integral piece to, to helping get my business off the ground, which was I right away started an email list mm. and started building an email list and started creating content that was high in value for the people on that list. So when I left UPMC, the division I had been over had more than 300 managers in it that I had worked with and who had a great deal of affection, of affection for me. Uh, on my last 48 hours on the job, I got more than 50 emails from people saying like really heartfelt stuff, not like good luck, but really intense, heartfelt stuff about the impact that I had had. And uh, I saved those emails and I gave people the opportunity, hey, if you want to keep in touch, I'm over here at this website. You can put, you know, put your email address in and I'll, I'll keep in touch. And now for, for almost 10 years, I've had our boss better email newsletter, which I send out every other Tuesday, which is advice, humor, and encouragement for bosses. And, you know, I figured out quickly and learned from the new NSA friends I had made that if you go speak somewhere or you do some training somewhere, the chances that people are going to remember you three years from now when they're in a meeting and somebody at the table says, boy, we need to find a speaker. They're not going to immediately go, oh, Joe Mull, who I saw in Akron three years ago, he was great. They're not going to remember your name unless you find a way to continue staying top of mind adding value to the problems that they face every day. And so that email newsletter created a communication uh, relationship with that audience. I was able to mine that audience for the nature of their challenges and difficulties. And then I was able to write to those, right? I wrote to them on my blog. I wrote to them in my book. I wrote to them in the program offerings and events I was creating. And so it became this beautiful symbiotic relationship where, just like you said, I'm not trying to assume I know. I'm just trying to respond to the needs that I see out there. You seem to have somewhat sidestepped the problems that a lot of early entrepreneurs fall into. Um, <laughs> that's great. Because one of the things you're just saying that I, I want to call out is um, you, you, A, built an email list. Um, but Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income said the, the number one problem is that people don't have an email list. The number two problem is they don't send email to their email list yes. <laughs> if they build yes. one. <laughs> And yes. by the way, that is the best way to not have anyone unsubscribe is to just never send email. Right. Um, but that's not useful. So um, I think the fact that you you were like, well, here's these relationships, people who clearly think I'm doing something good, like yeah. let me invite them kind of on this journey with me. You didn't hesitate to, to, to make that invitation to establish yourself as the entrepreneur who could provide value. 
and you were listening and you were responding and you're reacting and like the symbioticness of there is really apparent. And that way you're, you know, and this is all very, this is the very beginning. I mean, like yeah. a lot's probably changed in the last decade as to what you offer and all that. But yeah. those first few years are just really difficult and critical when it comes to setting yourself up. Um, I'm curious because you've sidestepped a lot of the other challenges. How many programs <laughs> and software did you buy that you didn't use this first couple oh, of years? Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay, good. I'm just glad you don't have to mention it. I'm just yeah. glad I'm not alone in that. <laughs> no, no. I think we went through two or three, you know, email platforms and CRMs. And, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think There's everybody has which Spending money becomes your job when you're a new entrepreneur. Like, or have you done the thing where you create this new series and you give it a catchy name and then, you know, you do four or five of them and you're like, this isn't going anywhere. So it just goes on the pile, you know, yeah. and you kind of create, you try to create branding within branding. You know, my company, when I started, it was not Joe Mall and Associates. I, I created a boutique training firm called Ally Training and Development. And it was really about my philosophy of leadership, which is that the strongest leaders are allies, right? They, they act in the best interest of others and they, they work as allies, as partners with their direct reports. And so for years, I ran probably three, the first three, four years of my business, it was ally training and development. And what I learned is that nobody thinks the word A-L-L-Y is pronounced ally. I was introduced as the, C, as the CEO and president of Ally training and development all the time. Um, it was just interesting. And for a couple of years, I finally heard from folks that said, Joe, you're the business. People want you. It's your personality. It's your skills. It's your insights. It's your character. It's you put your name on it. And so we did that a couple of years in. That was a big change. That's always a difficult question for an entrepreneur, whether or not to yeah. branch themselves. And I know there's debates on both sides of that. Yeah. It sounds like you sort of found your way. Um, have you written more than one book? I have. So yeah. So what was the first book? How did that get it? Yeah, the first book is called Cure for the Common Leader, mm. What Physicians and Managers Must Do to Engage and Inspire Healthcare Teams. I was very focused in the healthcare space in the first three, four years of my business. And that was that two-day leadership masterclass. It was called the same mm. thing. And I turned it into a book that that came out in 2014. Now, it's hard to believe that the book is nine years old, but we still get healthcare organizations who order it and use it. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, and then four years ago, my second book came out. It's called No More Team Drama, Ending the Gossip, Clicks, and Other Crap that Damage Workplace Teams. That was born out of me going into organizations, bringing my cure for the common leader model of the, the conditions that leaders need to create for people to thrive, and learning over and over again that the one that leaders were getting stuck on the most was fostering group cohesion and team spirit and navigating toxic personalities, difficult people, everything that we put into the hopper and called team drama. So uh, I spent a year and a half trying to answer the question, why do some teams become high-performing, close-knit groups while others get mired in drama and dysfunction and ended up writing that book? And then, the, yeah. the Did third that come out in 2019? 2018, I believe. 2018. Yeah. yeah. So now we're coming up on, we're not quite at five years yet. Yeah. So you had the ability to at least implement some of the ideas in the book after the book came out before the pandemic alter yes. your plans. Yep. What yep. did the what did the pandemic sort of or how did the it impact your business plan? Yeah, so there were two huge impacts. The first was that we had made the decision in early 2019 that the time had come to open up our borders to non-healthcare clients. Uh you know, I would do a lot of training, speaking, consulting and 
people in the audience would go home and sit across the dinner table from their partner or spouse. And they would say, I saw this great speaker today and he's talking about all the same stuff you're dealing with at your IT company. Right. And so they would read my cure for the common leader healthcare book and they would still call and say, well, would you work with us? And so we realized that we were hitting a ceiling into the who we could serve and partner with by making it very healthcare specific. So we went through a lot of work in 2019 to, for lack of a better word, rebrand. It was really just kind of a repositioning of how we talk about what we do uh, to open up our borders. And we pushed the go live button on that on January 1st, 2020. Yeah. And, you know, so three months later, the world shuts down and uh, really, we spent much of the pandemic shifting to virtual, like like a lot of folks, Robbie. We had um, a number of keynote speaking engagements on the calendar that went away, but I also had some training contracts and some other kinds of consulting engagements that we do that still needed to take place, but I couldn't get on a plane. And so I was an early adopter of a lot of virtual technology. We I rent an office away from the house, and we had a room set up for video recording, but it was mostly to do YouTube stuff. And we quickly converted it into, uh, you know, we've got three cameras in here now. We, we use Ecamm, which is broadcasting software. I gave myself a crash course in all of this in April of 2020. And uh, by June, we were holding our own live virtual events for managers across the country who could register and participate. We called it our Boss Better Virtual Summit. And we still do those twice a year now. So um, my my I have service lines in my business that would not have existed had we not been forced to move into those virtual environments oh my entire business is, yeah is all new revenue right. streams that came yeah. out of of the the need to find a new way to show up and offer value um yep. my, my short story is that uh, after 10 years of of working to be known as a person who was teaching people how to network at conferences my tedx talk comes out january of 2020 and i'm <gasps> poised to be an overnight success 10 years in the making yep and i've got this new talk that i'm rolling out and and you know and then, yeah, two months later, no one has any need for any of the stuff that I'm talking about. Um, but then by the end of 2020, I had a thriving new six-figure business. So, you know. Well, that's a work. credit to you and not just your resilience, but your creativity, your adaptability, and you looking for ways to serve the people who you know need to know what you know. So, I mean, I mean, likewise, right? Story. So I think that what I'm recognizing in you is someone who hit the gas. Some people in our field, um, speaking as a spe speakers specifically, um, some people hit the gas and some people hit the brake. I yep. heard a lot of people say, uh, I'll just, you know, I'll just see what happens in six months, you know? Yeah. And it reminded me, I think there were two things that happened at the same time too, that really served me well. The first is I had built a financial cushion in my business. I have three kids under the age of 13. We've talked about our kids a little bit. Um, I have always operated with a certain amount of fear. Like what? As self, a self-employed person, if something happened to one of my kids and I needed to sit at a hospital bed for six months or a year, how would we survive? Because I'm going to be at the hospital bed. That's where I would need to be. Um, so how do I build that cushion so that we could survive something like that? That cushion helped me survive 2020 and into 2021. 
The second thing that we did, because my business was so healthcare focused and the entire healthcare universe was getting deluged in those early spring months of 2020, we made the decision that we weren't selling anything. We were just going to show up and help. So we were creating videos. We were sending them out to our list. We increased the frequency. What do you need? Here's a free one-hour webinar about mental health. Here's a free one-hour webinar. We just showed up to serve for the first couple of months of that experience. And, you know, that aligns with the values that we bring into the work that we do. But it's also we had spent all these years telling these healthcare partners how deeply we cared about and admired their work. And it was a chance for us to prove it and to maybe in one teeny tiny small way be of service to them at a time when they were being of service to so many. Wow, I get it. That totally makes sense. And that service leadership mentally approaching it that way meant that you were staying top of mind when budget lines sort of resurfaced and training become possible again, you were going to be one of the folks they were going to reach out to. Um, that's really cool. And and you also were working on your craft on how to do this virtually. Like yes. you, were, you were getting stage time doing that for yourself. And I think that's the thing that, you know, it's different than in person. It's, it's not, oh. you know, in, in person that was described as sort of theatrical. And then yeah. here we're like in this little tiny box cinematic, right? So, it's a very different experience to to perform and to provide value in this little box, um, which I ended up loving. I did not know as an outgoing expert how much I would enjoy yeah. um, staying home and, and providing value to people around the yeah. globe. Um, it takes a lot for me to leave my driveway now. <laughs> like I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the, as a performer, right. If you think back to that, that theater and that music mm -hmm. background, the, the energy and the electricity that I can create with an audience, which is one of my favorite parts of the work that I do in a lot of ways that goes away virtually. Now there are, there are ways, as you know, to recreate moments of that, but it is an awkward thing as a performer to land the punchline and just leave space for the laugh that you hope is happening on the other side of the monitor. And I learned that I actually didn't have to change much about my delivery if I could trust that the audience on the other side of that monitor were still the same people who would have been in the room with me and are going to laugh in the same places. And for the most part, that's held true. So moving ahead, I, I'm, I'm curious kind of where you are now because you came up with a recently with a new book and it feels like you're really kind of doubling down on this brand wise. And so tell me a little bit about the, the focus of this book and how this you know, moves you into the future of your business. Yeah, well, two things happened as 2020 turned to 2021. And the first was we started hearing only all about what's called the great resignation, which is not the right label. And um, about what and that everything has changed as a result of the pandemic in terms of what people are looking for. And no, it hasn't. In terms of the, the, the human needs that people have in terms of what I need from my job to be fulfilled at my job and from my boss to be fulfilled at my job, those things have largely not changed. And I was having a lot of those conversations. And then I was on a podcast uh, about a year and a half, almost two years ago now, and we had had this wide-ranging 30-minute conversation about where commitment comes from in the workplace, which is what my area of expertise is in. And it was a really rich discussion. And at the end of that 30-minute interview, the host said this. He said, all right, Joe, let me get you out of here on this. Let's put a nice bow on this in one sentence. Where does commitment come from at work? And I went, 
you know, I don't think I can give it to you in one sentence, man. Like, as we just talked about, it's all these things. And then I, Robbie, I recounted the entire interview in like the world's longest run on sentence. And uh, have you ever had that experience where you start talking and you can hear yourself talking and you think, oh, God, stop talking. That was me on that podcast. Uh, and when that episode ended, I kept thinking about that question. In one sentence, where does commitment come from at work? And my answer wasn't wrong, but it wasn't concise. And I thought, boy, what a disservice we do to leaders and organizations We can't when we can't give them a one-sentence answer to that question. We can't give them a simple, clear framework that says, these are the things that you get right. If you get them right, it works. And so I set out to answer that question. I wanted to marry together all the years of work that I had done teaching leaders how to be better bosses with what we think we know about what's happening in the labor market right now. And so I went off and analyzed more than 200 research studies and articles on why people quit or stay with an organization uh, or decide to join another. And I can tell you with conviction that people will join an organization and stay long-term if they uh, get three specific kinds of employee experiences. And when you mix all those together, uh, I call it employalty, employer loyalty and humanity. We know that when organizations make a commitment to a more humane employee experience, that activates commitment in the workplace for employees. And so that's the book that I wrote. It's built around this sort of three-factor framework. Uh, it's filled with stories, not from Apple or Netflix or, well, actually there is a Netflix reference in there, but you know, a lot of times you get these business books which talk about Apple and Southwest and Disney. And you know, this is a book that has stories from an excavation company in West Virginia, an electric, uh, a lighting company in Oklahoma, a small town hospital in Kentucky, really small to mid-sized organizations who are trying to figure out how do you find and keep devoted employees. Right. As opposed to being Patagonia or Zappos. Which is right, right. Usual, which the is the new wave studies. of the big ones, yeah. The usual case studies, right? Yep. I know. Yep. I'm showing my grad school. <laughs> yes. That's all right. Recent. That's all right. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting. And again, I love that you're you're always following the path of like what keeps you curious, and what's the market sort of looking for. And you're riding this wave right now that we're all hearing. I I mean, my LinkedIn has shifted in this direction humane everything, humane marketing, humane leadership, human-centered X, right? Human-centric X. Like there is just a lot of people who are all trying to tackle the same question, which is, you know, we're, we're, we're showing up. We're beings who are showing up to do a job. How do we so center that as part of the conversation um, or center that in the conversation? So I think that you're, you're kind of writing a, a, a conversation that's happening in a bigger way. Um, but you have a very unique, I think you have a unique twist on it. You also have very catchy wording. Um, it's a little more concise and makes you distinct. So good for the unique selling proposition piece. <laughs> Thank um, you. Thank you. Very how much. is your network now? Like when you think about all the people you've gotten to know, because um, I feels like you must now have such an interesting Venn diagram of concentric circles of people that you know. And there's the people that are really your close circle of friends that you know you'll stay in touch with. But then I always wonder about the second and third tiers out. The people you see once a year at a conference or you work with them five years ago, but you haven't had a reason to since. And you like each other, I should always preference with that. You enjoy each other's company. So how do you think about staying in touch 
and nurturing those kinds of, and I'll say weaker ties, any habits, philosophies, practices? So this is where that email list really comes in handy for the for people who have been clients or for people who are more professionally associated with the the work that I do or the services I provide or who want to follow that professional journey. So having an email list has been really powerful. We launched that podcast uh, two and a half years ago now, that Boss Better Now podcast, which was another way for folks to uh, at least hear from me. That's a that's, that's a sort of one sided relationship, but. Um, uh, you know, social media certainly has helped. When I think about the next layer of my community, it really is this whole network of professional speakers, coaches, consultants, authors, podcasters, who I've met and and built close friendships with through the National Speakers Association, for example. And in that world, I think what has been the most impactful was getting involved in online groups. Like when I first started, I got active. There was a, there still is a members only Facebook group for the National Speakers Association. And I knew that if I showed up there and uh, asked questions and learned from others, but then also contributed when I had answers to questions that others were asking, people would start to get familiar with my name people would start to see that I, maybe I had some knowledge or expertise to help. Uh, they would, I would start to become legitimized as a professional in that community. And so I just committed to keep showing up there. And uh, that was, that's a way that I really built those relationships. And, you know, you've been going to NSA for a while too, Robbie, you've heard a lot of people say that you go at first for the business development content, but then you start building these relationships and then you keep coming back to hang out with your friends. And I remember when I first started going, I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, that's great. But then now that is absolutely what it is, right? My Some of my very best friends in the world are there. And even if I didn't like any of the speakers or topics that are gonna be on the agenda, I'm still gonna go because it's like my version of summer camp. <laughs> I actually made the decision in 2015 when I left my job my career in 2014. I joined NSA January of 2015 because I'd been part of the association from my previous profession. And I thought, well, why would I wait 10 years to join? I'm gonna join, I'm gonna go 10 years in a row to this conference and then decide whether it's worth it. By the way, I'm in year nine. <laughs> okay. And along the way, you find leadership opportunities. So I now run the NSA Rainbow Speakers Group for LGBTQ plus speakers and our allies. And I host a monthly networking social called Mike Swap, which is totally up my alley. These are both things that yep. I love doing that I feel like pretty uniquely positioned to do well. And so, yeah, like you said, if you find a way to give back and you keep meeting people and connecting, then that becomes a draw. And I, I think that my 10-year plan was to make myself commit to, to doing that relationship yeah. piece that you were just mentioning as well. So a year from now, we're meeting and i remember that it's hey i interview you remember that when you were doing all those interviews for your book like i interviewed you <laughs> so what's what's the thing we're going to be celebrating a year from now for you like what are we going to be toasting on your behalf what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead that i followed through on chasing something despite whether or not i knew it was going to be successful so when we decided to birth this book into the world um, we had some choices to make about how much time to invest in it and how much 
effort and money to invest in it. And I knew that I wanted to give this book every opportunity that it had in the world to maybe land on a bestsellers list or to just really make some noise and be of service to people. And, you know, there are a lot of voices around you who will tell you that, you know, the chances of that happening are very low. And, you know, you could save yourself a lot of money and a lot of heartache by just kind of putting it out in the world at a, at a sort of lower level of expectation than uh, what you're swinging for, Joe. And I remember so clearly thinking that sometimes we have to do things not for ourselves, but because of who is watching. And as I said, I've got three kids and I would never want any of my kids to not chase their dreams because someone told them it was hard or because someone told them that the chances of success were low. And so when we made the decision to really try to, to bring this book into the world at a high level, I, I kept thinking about all those cheesy motivational posters that you see, right? You know, shoot for the moon, even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. But there's some truth in that, you know? So we decided to take a big swing with the book. And I made a commitment, even after a year and a half of just intense research and writing, to basically commit to another year of of everything like this, it's podcast interviews, it's webinars, it's investing in PR, it's, you know, it's all the social media stuff that you have to do with it. I think a year from now, Robbie, just to be able to look back and said, you did everything you possibly could to give that book a chance to be successful. And by that metric alone, you were successful. That's awesome. Yeah, no, having uh, just gone through my own uh, book launch again, 17 months after the last one. <laughs> yeah. oh. having two under two. <laughs> Did you lose a bet or are you just a glutton? For um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Someone said to me in an interview, so how did you end up publishing not one, but two books during the pandemic? And I said, I what now? <laughs> I <was> like, <laughs> like, I don't think I even realized that that had happened. Um, yeah, no, it's a lot. And I think what you're saying is there's the writing the book and like you did a lot of original research. So there's a lot of intense work to do that part. And then there's this moment you're like, I want people to actually read this. This is valuable. Yeah. So there's the effort to make it be visible in the world. And that seems yeah. to be what you're working on now. And I can't wait to celebrate the success of this book and how others, it's the, the ripple effects of this book as, as the leaders get their hands on this and it will change how workplaces are sort of designed. So that's the ultimate piece is for us to see the results of all that. This is awesome. I can't wait for people to find more about you and follow you. So how can people connect with you and follow your work? The fastest, easiest way is just to type my name into your web browser, joemull.com, J-O-E-M-U-L-L.com. Or if that's too hard to remember, you can go to bossbetternow.com and that'll get you there too. Awesome. We're going to put all those links in the show notes as well as to your podcast, your LinkedIn, We'll hold them all there at ontheschmooze.com. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for the great conversation, my friend. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for episode 333. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. 
I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry despite the challenges they face. I'll ask them probing questions and get them to share untold stories about their entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.